I am a poor wayfaring stranger I'm traveling through this whole of life Yet there's no sickness, toil, no danger In that bright land to which I go Welcome back to another episode of On the Ground with Samaritan's Purse, where we take you to the front lines and behind the scenes of our work around the world. I'm your host, Christy Graham. Today's episode is unique. It's part of a two-episode miniseries all about Ukraine. We'll be sharing stories from a recently liberated region that was occupied in the conflict. The voice you just heard was a Ukrainian medical interpreter. He sang one of his favorite songs to encourage our team as they were living and serving in an area just 60 miles from active fighting. And in September, after the conflict had been raging for over six months, thousands of miles of eastern Ukraine were liberated, seemingly overnight. And it exposed the rest of the world to the horrors that had occurred during the occupation. The accounts are are heartbreaking, and they're difficult to hear. Samaritan's Purse knew that we were called to serve these survivors— but the task would be dangerous. Since many hospitals were targeted in bombings, people who remained in the city, they they didn't have reliable health care. And in order to meet both physical and spiritual needs of the vulnerable families, we deployed a second emergency field hospital to a city left in the ruins. For the safety of our team, we can't say exactly where the hospital was located, and the deployment was intentionally discreet. But more than 190 DART members deployed to this site— They were willing to leave behind their personal safety to live in a hidden bunker serving those in need of medical care. And until recently, when we handed over the emergency field hospital to the Ukrainian Ministry of Health, we couldn't even talk about this project. But now that the work at this particular location has ended, we're finally able to share the incredible work that our team accomplished. They left the safety and comfort to serve people who were suffering. We've left out the names of people and places for their own safety. And so sometimes you might notice a muffling. We're trying to take out their names to keep their identity secure. But I'm grateful to be able to introduce you to brave Ukrainians who are willing to share their story. Our podcast correspondent, Stephen, made the long journey. It took him five days to get to the emergency field hospital that was hidden among a sea of destroyed buildings. His first night there, he spoke with lab tech Trish, uh, and they were interrupted many times by the sound of bombs. Did you see that? There was a flash over there. There you go. Wow. That was an explosion over there. Wow. Yeah, there wow. again. Just lighting up everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And so, so that is the front line of the war right over there that yeah. we're watching right now. Yeah, and now. You, could, you saw another one down further. See yep. Along? Yeah. Wow. So all along that line. Listening to Stephen and Trish, I just can't believe how casually they're able to talk while bombs and missiles are going off and they can see it in the background. Unfortunately, uh, this has become so normal to our teams as they work and respond in Jesus' name. Our teams know the risk of serving in this area, but the disaster assistance response team still felt compelled to serve. The next day, Stephen was able to speak with a man who received surgery for a shrapnel injury just the week before. He was there for his final medical checkup. While waiting on the doctor, he shared what it was like to live in the midst of a conflict. Do you know anyone that was killed during the war so far? Final. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Who do you know who was killed? Uncle was 19. Brother. His brother. 
I'm so sorry for your loss. What was your brother's name? You can just hear the emotion in his voice. It, it truly breaks my heart. Uh, but this heartfelt reaction is actually rare in eastern Ukraine. Uh, Stephen described to me that most of the patients, uh, as they shared their experiences, their expressions were detached. Uh, they were almost separated from what had happened. It was a defense mechanism against the horrors that they'd seen and the loss that they'd experienced. Um, and as this patient continued to tell his story, he, he appeared uncomfortable with his emotions he was expressing. But he quickly composed himself and described his traumatic injury and the surgery our team provided. What kind of things um, were you treated for while you were here? What kind of medical services were you given here? Uh, take out uh, all shrapnel, and uh, one shrapnel is uh, in his hip. I see. Yeah. Um, how have you been feeling since getting your surgery? Good. Very good. good. This patient chose to stand his ground while his city became occupied and his life was directly threatened. Many of the other stories that we've shared with you in the past, they've featured voices of Ukrainians who have fled the violence. But these patients stayed. Even when others left, they became prisoners in their own town. Another patient, a mother, described the horrors of war not only as physical but emotional. Uh, the whole occupation was a, a hard experience for her. Uh, especially when they, the, when uh, she heard shooting, uh, when uh, there was a lot of shooting, it was more scary. Mm -hmm. um, what made you want to stay? Why did you want to stay here? She said that she loves and doesn't want to leave it because it's her uh, like hometown. It's uh, the place where her parents live, where her grandparents are, and uh, that's her motherland. For one 30-year-old man who came in with a broken leg, the hardships of staying during the occupation were still fresh in his mind. Tell me how you broke your leg. What happened? He says, well, it was uh, ordinary day. I was at work. And uh, at that day, I was on my way with, uh, my, with the bucket of water in my hand right hand so i was walking on the path and uh, some place it was some holes because of explosions and so on so i just uh, stepped with my uh, right leg with my right, fo uh, right foot in that hole and suddenly i fell down on the left side and wh while i was falling down uh, my the bucket kicked my leg right leg bone so it just accidentally oh, broke it and it's so simple but so so hard it, hard it so a lot. So that's the way how he broke it. Yesterday when you came to the emergency field hospital, they asked you about your pain, and you said, I survived the occupation, I can survive this. Like so? Yeah, he, he says, well, uh, what I experienced in that basement, how they beat me, that I had even scars, some weeks after that. So this is small thing compared to what I have experienced in my life. I'm okay. I'll be okay. As he continued to share, he seemed eager to have his voice heard. He explained to Stephen that during the occupation, he was taken captive. He was imprisoned in a basement, interrogated and beaten simply because of people he knew. So he got stuck in a basement at uh, school number two. 
So were you hiding during in the school or did they force you to stay there kind of like prison? Ну як би, а так люди так і було, It was like a prison. It was like a prison. Вони тут багато місць було де. They had many places where they kept, kept people uh, kept it, no, as prison. Many schools they used as prisons, basements and schools. They start to kick him and do some yeah, bad stuff. So uh, and after they finish it, they just uh, uh, moved him to uh, another room, the basement, and he said like it was more water over his knee, knees. Wow. Yeah, so much water there. So he should stay there one night, and next morning, like he just opened the door, uh, threw the bread on the water, and just like said, eat, eat it, and closed the door. So they beat him while he was imprisoned. Um, he stayed in the flooded basement with water. What kinds of things were going through his mind after he was captured? What did he think would happen to him? Well, uh, what was in his mind, he was scared, of course, because he could die and probably they could kill him at once. But he also was worried about her, his uh, girlfriend at that moment girlfriend and her mother because he took care of both of them and he was thinking how to do uh, so he could save them if something could happen to them and of course it was difficult for him because from 11 o'clock in the evening until 6 o'clock in the morning next day he had to spend this, that time in the basement so it was really a terrible experience for him to say. Can you explain to people what living in an occupied city is like what does daily life look like what kinds of things changed once the city was occupied well he says let me show you example it, my life before full invasion before all this started i had a city that was good looking good and building and was like good life had a good life i had a job i had mom and after they come they took everything from me I don't have, I lost my mom, I lost relationship, my, I have no job, my city is destroyed, I lost everything. That's one, the example. And I'm not the only one who lost everything. So many people lost the same, have same loss, losses, yeah? You mentioned that you lost your mother. Can you tell me what happened to her? Well, he says uh, after Ukraine was, uh, was occupied, his mother started start to drink alcohol very much. And he couldn't do anything to stop her. And then one day she got a heart attack and nobody could help her. And she died because of heart attack. How are you getting through this? It's such a difficult thing. And like you said, everything that you know has been taken. How do you find the strength to keep moving forward? He says uh, it hurts sometimes and he really have some struggles to, to live. But this is life and he continues life. Yeah, difficult life. Duh. So he says like after all what happened in my life, I no sense like to stop living or hate to live. We have to move on. And now I'm moving on. And yeah, I have some injury on my leg, but life moving on, we can't step in. 
think about our past. We have to think about future. We're really thankful that you came to our hospital. We're sorry that you broke your leg. Who knows? Maybe it's, it's, it would be for better changes. I think so. I feel like God wanted us to have this conversation together. I know that you have a long road ahead of you to overcome everything that's happened since February. But I do genuinely believe that Jesus is the answer for all of us to keep moving forward. You're a really strong person. Because most people would not be here today if they had experienced what you have. I told you just a 50% like of what I have experienced. Yeah. I could tell you much more stories yeah. about my life. Well, because you've survived so much, I know that it's because God has a plan for your life and for your future. I believe that if I've survived, then God gave me a chance, second chance. Stephen talked with another woman who came into the hospital on the brink of a medical emergency. When the conflict first broke out, a local doctor had diagnosed her with severe gallbladder stones. However, she wasn't able to receive an operation as the fighting began. She went on for eight months with this extremely painful, untreated medical condition. Hours after arriving at the hospital, she shared about her life in the red zone. You were in throughout the entire occupation, is that correct? Yes, that's true. That's true. Can you tell me what life was like here during the occupation? I've heard terrible stories, but what was life for you like? Yeah, it was a very terrible experience for me and my neighbor, where I spent um, my time during occupation. We hide ourselves in the basement, and we we remember it was several air raids, air attacks, and they drop bombs nearby us and I remember three times I, I feel this this pressure from bombs and I was hit by this wave three times and it was really terrible when we went upstairs outside we saw there was no buildings they were destroyed. Mm. During those air raid attacks what kinds of emotions were you feeling while hiding in the basement? It was really terrible because I was really scared. I didn't know will I survive or not. And these bombs and these holes after bombs, they were so big. You can, you could probably see one by park here, city park. So, and we were really scared because we, we had a small child living with us at that time. We were in tears and fears and we prayed God to save us and protect us so we could survive these attacks and bombing. Who is the small child who stayed with you during the occupation? Uh, the it was my grandson. Grandson. Mm -hmm. He started to draw pictures where you could find, where you could see parts of body, hands, head, dead people, and all about death, because he's seen this, uh, that with his own eyes. Mm. How old is your grandson? He's six years old. Wow, that's a lot for a six-year-old to see. It's very difficult. We all need recovery after that terrible experience. Yeah, yeah. How long did the bombings last? How long did you have to stay in basements off and on? 
Um, she says uh, they were hiding in their basements up till uh, summertime. Just and the bombing stopped after this territory was occupied. So probably day after day they had to hide. And she says after they came in, um, they she have seen big artillery machines. They were so big, like. Uh, like a small houses, you know, and you and you could when you hear when they were driving, you could hear them, and they were so heavy, so it was really terrible. And uh, uh, all these machines, all this heavy artillery, wasn't that far away from uh, from a side of um, villages, not far away, and field, near fields. So she could hear what, when they sh were shooting, and and uh, all this. Uh, when they bombed another cities and uh, nearby villages. Mm. What was the most difficult part? What were the conditions like in the basement when you were hiding? How did you eat? How did you survive? No. She says uh, it was difficult times because uh, we used to use uh, gas to heat our buildings. So uh, we, she had to chop the wood firewood so she could make a fire for three months before it get warmer and they it was cold all the time and the wooden stove couldn't make enough heat because they lose that uh, warm very fast so they have to use many blankets she went on to share that months of hiding gave her a new appreciation for the freedom that she's beginning to experience again now I understand what freedom is, because I wasn't free so long time. I couldn't walk outside. I couldn't do anything I want, because if I do something, I could just easily die. And now for me, the word freedom and the meaning of this word means a lot. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate the freedom I have, I had, and I hope I will have again. Um, why did you stay? Did you have to stay? Yes, uh, her daughter asked her to go with her, but she said, um, I don't want to leave because it's my country, it's my place where my parents were born, born. So if I would have to die here, I would die. So God will decide where I should die here or I should leave. She, say, uh, she says it was the most difficult was to carry all this uh, emotional uh, experience because it was really difficult and at the same time she had to care about her husband who is paralyzed so he lying in his bed all the time he asked for food and sometimes when he, she gave him food he said like oh it's too little I want more and she said like I don't have more please like this is what I have if you want to live you have to eat and be strong no matter how much food I give you so this was the hardest thing for her to take care of people and continue to live. It was really hard experience because uh, she have to make food on open fire and sometimes you could hear some sound that reminds you falling leaves. This and this sound was sound of rockets and she even saw some of them and you never know where they fall down. Maybe they fall down 
close to you and you will be dead. Maybe they fly further. So it was always on the edge of life and death. You never know wh where you would die. For this patient and so many others like her who decided to stay during the occupation, they were shocked when they found out that their city had finally been liberated. And her neighbor told her, like, look, I know the railway station, it, it's another side of river, uh, there are Ukrainian military already, so probably liberated. And uh, But say, no, I don't believe you, don't make fun of me, it's not funny, you know? And, and she said again, well, yeah, but you see on another uh, place, you, I saw Ukrainian flag, and it was really emotional day for her because uh, she couldn't believe that she's liberated and uh, at that moment ukrainian military start to walk in every house to check the houses to be sure that it's safe the future in ukraine is, is uncertain but this region has begun to heal for the more than 3,000 other patients treated at this facility, our staff has become a beacon of light in a city that was almost destroyed. The reason that Samaritan's Purse goes into dangerous places is to show the love of Christ while people are in the ditches of life. Our staff helped these patients physically, but more importantly, offered spiritual healing. They shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, this gives us hope beyond this life. I know this episode was difficult to listen to. The stories were tragic and heartbreaking. Uh, these people have seen things and experienced trauma that, that will leave wounds that will last their lifetime. But in the Bible, we read many passages where people experience trauma and darkness. Uh, David is one that writes many throughout Psalms. And, and one passage in Psalm 31, David is crying out to the Lord. He's begging God for refuge. He's in a great time of distress. His eyes are worn out. He's consumed with grief. His strength is failing. His bones are wasting away. And he's feeling forgotten. But after many verses uh, focusing on his circumstances, he shifts his focus. And he says in verse 14, But I trust in you, Lord. I say, you are my God. The course of my life is in your power. Rescue me from the power of my enemies. And I love the way that he trusts in the Lord. Even in the darkness, in the pit of life, he has hope. And he goes on in verse 22 to say, In my alarm I said, but you heard the sound of my pleading when I cried to you to help. And then in verse 24, he finishes with, Be strong and let your heart be courageous, all you who put your hope in the Lord. And this is why our teams go to serve. They go to offer hope, the hope of the gospel. The gospel changes and transforms brokenness. I love Romans 15, 13. It says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what we're witnessing our teams do with the body of Christ throughout Ukraine. Churches are truly overflowing with the hope of the gospel during these difficult times. Circumstances are difficult. Air raids and sirens are constant. But like the Good Samaritan, our teams are running to those wounded in despair. Okay, we got this on top. One, two, three, go! Oh. Oh, yeah. 
So right now we just heard from our security. Um, we were actually just about to perform a surgery. We were getting ready to prepare the anesthesia and our security manager let the team know that we actually need to go down in the bunker and shelter in place. So we're preparing right now to do that. We're gonna take our patients down with us and wait until further notice to come back up and continue working. Even on some of the best days at the field hospital, things can change in a moment. On the front lines of a conflict, anything can happen. When the sirens go off, our teams have to act quickly to get themselves and their patients to safety. The level of risk is always unknown in times like this. Staff are unsure when they'll be able to emerge from the bunker. Listen next week as we bring you back to eastern Ukraine to find out what happened next. <laughs> 